get the next 10 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £1. There's no commitment and you can cancel at any time. But hurry, because this offer runs for a week only. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Forsyth. King Charles III is in Northern Ireland today. James, can you update us on his visit? So he's been to Northern Ireland, and obviously I think one of the, the features of the Queen's reign, especially the later years of it, was her role in, in kind of reconciliation, not just in Northern Ireland, but between the UK and Ireland more generally. And I think the fact that Charles has gone to Northern Ireland so early in his reign, that you know, there is an event there where the Taoiseach is there, he's um, shaken hands with, with, with Michelle O'Neill, who would, uh, who Sinn Féin topped the poll in the, in the, in the Northern Ireland elections. You know, all of these have symbolic value, and I think it's quite clear from what he said today but that, that, that this is something that he wishes to continue. Obviously... Tonight, the Queen's body will move, be moved from Edinburgh to, to Buckingham Palace and then tomorrow to, to Westminster Hall for the four days of lying in state before the funeral. And we also can expect Charles to, to go to Wales and then to head back to, to London ahead of that event. Um, I thought it was really striking how Alex Maskey, who is Sinn Féin's uh, Speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly, praised the way that the Queen had put so much effort into the peace process and uh, pointing that out, as James mentioned, the sort of little gestures that meant so much as part of that reconciliation process. So speaking a few words in Irish, for instance, and King Charles also uh, talked about how she had always been praying um, for a resolution to to the troubles and um, for the people of Northern Ireland. And uh, it was just a reminder again of what Liz Truss um, uh, referred to in her speech in in the Commons, uh, of the Queen's uh, role as as one of the most effective diplomats in the world, in that there was something particularly powerful about the way in which she, uh, despite uh, the deeply personal impact of the troubles on her own family was prepared to do things such as shaking Martin McGuinness's hand inviting him to to dinner at Windsor Castle and, and all those sorts of uh, big moments uh, throughout the the peace process and in recent years to try to um to, to try to move on from the legacy of the troubles. And now James the week began with developments when it came to Ukraine have we got any more of a sense of well this is that breakthrough moment? It's clearly a successful Ukrainian counteroffensive. There's a fascinating well briefed piece in the New York Times about how the Ukrainians worked with the British and the Americans. Uh, I mean, one, one might question the wisdom of how much is briefed out in this New York Times story. It really is extraordinary. Worked with the Ukrainians, uh, sorry, how the Ukrainians worked with the, the Americans and the British to to war game this, these, these two simultaneous offensives, how they used uh, greater levels of US intelligence about Russian uh, troop positions and where the Russian lines were weakest and the like. And I think it is also quite clear, again, hard to read given the situation is also quite clear that from what one can see on Russian state television but there is a backlash among President Putin's hardline most ideological supporters at these setbacks in Ukraine and they're not being totally disguised from the public 
And I think the question is kind of what happens next. I think this is where there is apprehension because you know this, this Ukrainian counteroffensive has clearly been successful. But the question now becomes how does Russia escalate? And I think I've, I I think that this is you know we have seen them targeting more civilian infrastructure. There's obviously a worry that that could continue, and, and given the the how things are in Ukraine over the winter, if they are knocking out power supplies and the like on a regular basis, that that could have you know, awful consequences. And then there are, there are other obviously more dramatic forms of, of Russian esca- escalation. And so I think this is the kind of question of what happens now. I think that but I think that what President Zelensky will feel is that you know, he wanted to show his Western backers before this winter, that this was not destined to be some war of attrition with both sides, you know, with, with advances measured in metres, but that they are advancing miles at a time and that they are capable of regaining much of the territory that they have lost since the invasion in February. And so this idea that they should be forced to a negotiating table is not sensible. So now, I think, we now wait to see what happens. We also, you know, you had the US indicating, you know, Biden administration officials indicating that they do not think this Ukrainian counteroffensive is at an end, that there is more to go. But I also think we now wait to see both what happens in Ukraine and what happens in Moscow. Now, James, obviously you're alluding to the fact that when it comes to the winter that uh, lots of European countries are facing, there is a cost of living crunch and domestic governments are already having to deal with the, the pressure of people who are struggling with their bills and a lot of that is linked to the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Isabel, we are expecting or at least we're getting glimmers of politics returning to some uh, veneer of normality next week and this will include this mini budget that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng have been planning. Um, what are we expecting from that? Is it obviously tax cuts and emergency relief? And do you think we'll have a chance for some of the scrutiny it's been missing so far? I'm not sure about your final question there about whether we'll, we'll have a chance for, for, for more scrutiny because the, the theme so far, one of the themes so far of, of the sort of early days of the trust government is that they're not that into scrutiny. And um, one of the reasons it's a, a mini budget or a fiscal event akin to a budget, which was one of the very clunky bits of branding that um, that the trust camp were giving it at, at one stage to, to make it uh, clear that it's not a budget, it's a, uh, it's a fiscal statement which entails less scrutiny. But it will include more details on help with energy bills, but alongside all the briefings and questions about the detail of, of that fiscal event akin to a budget is a row that, that hasn't gone away despite the, the interruption to, to sort of normal political business, which is the abrupt sacking of Tom Scholar as the permanent secretary in the Treasury. There's been a great deal of concern about what that means for the relationship between ministers and the civil service, whether that's something that it was appropriate for do, for Kwasi Kwarteng, the chancellor, to do on his first day in the job. And uh, we've had it today... One of his, um, well, a former Treasury Minister, um, Lord Agnew, who's been defending that decision, describing him as a malign influence at the Treasury. He uh, wrote in the Times today, having worked in his department for nearly two years, I saw at first hand the malign influence of the Treasury orthodoxy at play. And Treasury orthodoxy was obviously something we heard a lot about during the um, leadership campaign and uh, 
that wasn't just a campaign slogan that faded once Liz Truss won and became Prime Minister. It really is something that um, she and her allies believe needs to be tackled. And I suspect that in this fiscal event akin to a budget, uh, we will hear similar messaging again. And James, just finally, when it comes to Quasi Kwarteng's plans, the FT have a report today about the address that uh, the new Chancellor gave to civil servants, obviously in light of what Isabel was talking about, so that sacking, ultimately trying to assure civil servants that they're not going to actually have that mass change or movement. Uh, there's obviously been that big shake-up in number 10, lots of civil servants moved back to the Cabinet Office, ultimately saying, besides the change at the very top, it's not going to be so different, but there's a new mindset, and that is to go for economic growth. What does that mean in practice? The fundamental basis of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's economic policy is, is if you can raise the trend growth rate of the economy to 2.5%, all of the money you're borrowing for everything else, the size of these tax cuts, they all pale into insignificance. So his answer is, you know, go for growth, try and get growth to 2.5%, and then, you know, all these problems go away. The challenge of this is that trying to get growth going has proved very difficult in the UK economy since the financial crash in 2008. Productivity, but in the first years before the crash, grew at something like 2.2% a year. It's grown at 0.4% a year, I think I'm right in saying, since the crash. And I also think it's the list of things that have been tried and haven't worked. So, you know, George Osborne tried slashing corporation tax. And yes, it boosted revenues, but the tax cut but it didn't unleash huge levels of economic growth. We don't look back on the 2010s as a, as a decade of kind of roaring economic growth. I think this is the challenge. You know, what is it that will unleash growth? There are lots of talk in Whitehall today of growth zones. Of, that might be an idea. Lots of deregulation there. Again, though, I think the kind of question is, what is going to deliver growth and how quickly will it do it? I mean, I think this is an, another interesting question, which is, you know, even well-targeted supply-side reforms will take, you know, I think five years or so to, to have an effect on the growth rate of the economy. And the government is proposing to borrow quite a lot more money. I also thought, it's an interesting question today, which is the labour market numbers show, uh, they're, they're a mixed bag and they show the lowest unemployment rate since 1974. But that's partly because of the number of people leaving the labour market. And that is not people choosing to spend more time with their families and the like. It's increasing sickness, particularly increasing mental health problems. But I think in that condition of a very tight labour market, you know, again, deciding to reverse the national insurance rights, the fact that the labour market is so tight, to my mind, suggests that, that, that the cost of hiring labour on business is not a deciding factor in firms' economic decisions. And also, given how much this, this rise in economic activity has been driven by health concerns, again, it's hard to imagine that those people will be drawn back to the labour market by reducing the tax burden on them. So I, I think there are challenges here. But, you know, uh, but, but, but I think it is, it is quite clear, though, that, that, that the kind of trust-quarting approach is to constantly emphasise that they are going for growth. And that is, that, that is going to be their overriding policy aim. Thank you, James. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you for listening. 